It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Artificial intelligence tools at the center of so many debates right now are designed and built by people. And those people are bringing their own experiences and thinking to the design process. I do think it was problematic that the entire social media revolution was led by people with engineering mindsets who didn't pause and think what type of empathy values community bringing us together, civic life uh, do we need? I think you could have an AI that also divides us rather than unites us. For decades, Walter Isaacson has been writing books about how innovators and influential people think. He's covered Benjamin Franklin, Albert Einstein, and Steve Jobs, and his biography on Elon Musk is coming out September 12th. His work dissects his subjects' lives and tries to shed light on what motivates people who do something different. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's easy to imagine the ways AI might change our society for the better and for the worse, but it's harder to grasp how it might change our minds and what it will do to the nebulous forces that feed innovation and creativity. Will it augment us or compete with us? And do we really have any control over which way it goes? Journalist Andrew Ross Sorkin interviews Isaacson about his high-profile subjects and what might happen to big thinkers if and when AI becomes ubiquitous. Here's Sorkin. So let's actually start there with the idea of values. Let me just, Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, Einstein, Steve Jobs. Um, you wrote The Innovators in between, so there's a lot of people involved there. Um, Leonardo da Vinci and Codebreakers, Jennifer Doudna, and Elon Musk, which is coming soon to a bookstore or Amazon near you um, in September. You just said you thought that they had what kind of values? Did they have values? Well, what they had was innovative values. They really wanted to break out of the mold. They... Uh, were creative, and as we go into the era of AI, we say, what will humans bring to this party? Partly it'll be our creativity and our ability, as Steve Jobs said, to think different. Whether it's Einstein reading the first sentence of Newton's Principia, which is time marches along second by second, no matter how we, irrespective of how we observe it, and he says, how do we know that? How would we test that? And Elon Musk at the end, bringing us into the era of electric vehicles and the largest space, you know, rocket ever built, that's not just being smart. That's thinking out of the box. How many of these people actually spent time talking about values, though, and thinking about values? And I ask that partially because as we all now talk about AI, one of the things that's so unique about this moment is... You know, there's always hand-wringing when there's new technology. Mm. But the hand-wringing is oftentimes, and the thinking about values, is coming from those who are going to be left behind. Mm -hmm. It's not typically the innovators themselves. We're now in a moment, at least with AI, where I think it is the innovators themselves. But I'm so curious if maybe we missed it along the way. Was Benjamin Franklin and Einstein mm -hmm. and Steve Jobs talking about those issues, about the, the, the social impact then? I, I, I see Kai Bird here who just did the great Oppenheimer book that's become a documentary and now a movie. And so the last time you had a technology that happened before we assessed the values of it was when they figured out the bomb and Truman and Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer's the scientist and the manager who does this, Oppenheimer then goes into Truman's office afterwards, wringing his hand, saying, I've got blood on my hands. And Truman says, never bring that crybaby back again because, is that approximately correct? Yes. Yeah, that's it. I've read it in the book. I just want to make sure. Um, and so every now and then we have a technological revolution and we say, did we process the values first? Oddly, with the nuclear uh, atomic weapon revolution, we didn't, but because of that, we've ended up circumscribing its use. In other words, we were so shocked by it that now we have uh, codes in place. 
take the most, the two recent revolutions that have happened. One is the digital revolution, especially social media. That happened and we didn't stop to think about the values. We created all forms of social media and nobody said what should the, rule, what should the algorithms do and incent and what should they disincent. The reason I wrote The Code Breaker about Jennifer Doudna is the next revolution is about life sciences in which we turn molecules become the new microchip and we can edit our own DNA. We have 10 to 20 years to process this because it's going to take a while before we can say our grandchildren will be this tall, this smart, this hair color. Do we want to edit the human race? But I wanted that conversation to start. Um, if I look at, just take one example, let's take Steve Jobs. At the end of their lives, people get more reflective. And Steve Jobs, uh, in August 2011, when it was near the end, I went and stayed there. And I said, what was it all about? And he said, you know, my career has been driven by something my guru in India told me, which is that life is like a river, and if you're really successful, you get to take things out of the river. You get to, you know, things people have made, ideas they've had. He said, but now I realize that what really matters is what you get to put in the river that people in the future will take out. And Steve became very spiritual at the end. I could go through each one of them, even... Benjamin Franklin allowed the advertising of slavery in the Pennsylvania Gazette. And at the end of his life, he decides, all right, that was a sin. I'm going to become president of the Abol Society for the Abolition of Slavery. And also, he had seen the fracturing of America starting to happen on ethnic lines. And he had donated to the building fund of every church. And, and so at the end of his life, he donates to a hall that would allow Muslim preachers to come. He said, even if the Mufti of Constantinople were to send somebody here to teach us Islam, we should offer a pulpit. And that was the largest individual contributor to the Mikveh Israel Synagogue, the first synagogue. So all of them look back and are reflective of what did I do wrong? And they sort of then think about values. The goal is to start thinking about it before you get to the end. And we're doing that now uniquely with AI. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of handwriting, not just those who are worried about being left behind, but by those who are actually creating this technology. Before we get into that, actually, just because you mentioned Steve Jobs, at the very end of his life, and you wrote about this, his version, it was actually the last sort of the, the beginning beginning of what we may think of as AI, which was he was working on Siri. Well, the most important thing about AI is the concept of whether we're going to build artificial intelligence that will kind of leave us behind, that'll do things on their own, versus augmented. Are we going to have what Licklider called a symbiotic relationship with machines? Steve Jobs was the exemplar of that second camp which is we have to be more connected to our machines so that they will not develop intentionality or values different from ours. And the great leaps of the digital revolution were when Steve Jobs stole, he didn't really steal it, but he liked to brag that he stole the graphical user interface from Xerox Park, which is a way suddenly we didn't have to do, you're not old enough to remember, but C prompts with command backslash backslash. I remember. And first there was a command line. You could just click on a trash can if you want. So the next big advance came, just as I said, August 2011, his last meeting at Apple. They show him Siri so you can talk to the machine, and that binds us closer to our machines. Musk, who loved that story about Jobs doing that, says the ultimate advance is when you have a chip in your brain that shares your brain waves and the computer so that at a million times faster you're communicating. What would Steve Jobs think of that? Uh, you know, I'm always reluctant, you know, what would Steve think of Tim Cook's television, whatever. I do think that he got better than anybody this user interface connection being the ultimate goal. He had, unlike Musk, 
a fingertip feel for emotional connections people would have there to the devices. He would make the chamfers on the iPhone, just a curved way, because he said, that will sing to me. He would love the fact that the next great phase is we're going to be really connected to our own machines. So, so square this circle for me. It's, it's really the Elon Musk circle of here's an individual who has been very outspoken about what he thinks of uh, as the dangers of AI. Right? He's been very, has, yeah. this is Elon Musk, very, very outspoken. And yet, he is both now working on his own generative AI project, as you right. know, but he's also working on Neuralink, which ultimately will be its own AI in, a, in an even more intense and unique way. He's doing AI in four different ways. The two you mentioned, Optimus the robot, which will be able to use visual and even hearing. And then the cars. And then self-driving cars. One of the things that happened last March when everybody thought the AI revolution began is it wasn't quite as big of a deal as we thought for the first few weeks because it's mainly about text and gener generative uh, predictive text models that'll be able to, you know, you ask it a prompt, it gives you an output. What will really matter is real-world AI, something that can have visual input, that can walk around a room, can understand how to drive. So whoever combines real-world AI with large language model AI will win. He thinks he will win partly because it's all about data streams. If you look at why ChatGPT is screwed up 10% of the time or hallucinate, it's basically because, as Kathy and I were talking about, garbage in, garbage out. If it's trained on a data set that has junk, it will fall in love with the New York Times reporter. Not you, Kevin Roos, I think, was the one who got fallen in love with, but any New York Times reporter would have done. Very lovable. Yes, right. Who has the greatest of all data streams? Well, Google. It has every Google search. And we could go down the list. One billion tweets a day. The hive mind of humanity, including every meme, every thought, whatever. That used to be an open API, meaning that people could hook into right. it. And you may have noticed Musk cut that off. Why? Because he said, that's the fuel. That's my oil that's going to fuel this. The other great data stream? A billion frames a day by Tesla drivers around the world, all being brought into computers at, um, at uh, Tesla. And so he will have those data streams. How do you think about that in terms of, you know, people say data is the new oil. Yes. And if that's true, um, he's going to control most of it or much of well, it. Well, a lot of it. And I think Twitter, he, I mean, this is all in the book. And well, uh, when he bought Twitter, it had not occurred to him, because this was starting in April of last year, culminating in October, and large language models really were just starting to emerge in October. He said, what a piece of serendipity that buying Twitter, he got this hive mind of humanity data feed. So that was something he hadn't really planned. I'm sure he'll say, oh yeah, I knew it all along, but at least at the time he told me he hadn't planned for it. Uh, so, but let's look at other things. You're in two businesses. You write for the New York Times, amazing deal book, as well as breaking stories all the time, and you have your CNBC gig. The New York Times and CNBC have a data flow that not only is huge every day, but is so damn reliable compared to, say, Twitter. Right. Uh, so at some point, the competition in AI will be my AI, my large language model, my chatbot, whatever you want to call it, you can trust. And it's got, I see Jim Barks say that, it's got the Mayo Clinic data. It has right. CNBC's financial data. It doesn't have some blogger in a basement tweeting. It has better data. So I'm... And, and oil is a commodity. You said it's a new oil? But data is not a commodity. Some's more some so, barrels are more valuable. There's some uh, data that's more valuable, and I'm going to um, now probably speak completely out of school, and I, I don't know what the, uh, uh, the, my, my many masters have, have views about AI and, and the value of the content. My great worry, actually, is actually that the data, except for 
um, information, the tr truthful information that comes immediately. The immediate information will have great value, right. but that the archive value actually will actually um, have very, very little value. And the reason I say that is, today, if you wanted to write as James Patterson, you could. Not because uh, ChatGPT has ingested um, officially hundreds of James Patterson books, but because there's enough James Patterson out there that's already on the internet, quotes in yeah, other things. I could say, that write they, my right. chapter the way James Patterson would. Boom, it would come out beautifully. Exactly. And so the question is the, how much value the archives of these institutions actually ultimately hold. And it's something, I, I, by the way, as someone in this business, I worry dearly about it. Well, I am one of those people who, who is in the hand-wringing category of people worried it's going to pass me by. Well, let's take books, for example, which are great archives. You're writing one about yeah, the 1929 yeah. crash. I've written some. So I said to my publisher, Simon & Schuster, um, by the way, will uh, large language models be able to absorb our whole books, get them on Amazon or whatever, train on them, repurpose them, and tell the stories or redo it? And how do we license the books versus allowing people to build chatbots that just scrape them, let's right. say. And they looked at me and went, say what? <laughs> they had no clue. And so we'll see. But I think if you have Simon & Schuster, as you know, is up right. for sale or whatever, at some point the buyers may say, wait a minute, those archives might have huge value if we can license them, just as the Mayo Clinic might license and New York Times might license, the data to people trying to create smart AI. Let me ask you a different question, though, about these individuals and, and society. And it's, I think, somebody, everybody who, in this room who has children may worry about. Do you think that we're going to get to a point where AI is so powerful that it's smarter than so many of us that it's going to make it that much harder to create the next Einsteins and Benjamin Franklins and Elon Musks and Steve Jobs? Um, one of our friends, and Ann is on the, and Dora's on the board of Sal Khan, is about to do something that'll be totally transformative, which is every kid on this planet, and every kid in America, will have their own personal tutor, starting in pre-K, and it'll follow you all the way through. And you'll be able to wake up one morning and say, teach me French, tell me about quantum mechanics. It'll know what you understand about X and Y being variables and A and B being constants and how you get that wrong and keep tutoring you until you get it right. So what AI can do is augment, as we said earlier in this show, human creativity and intelligence by a factor, an order of magnitude one or two, a factor of 10 or 100. So I think, you know, Einstein was pretty lucky. He ran away from the horrible gymnasiums of uh, Germany, went to a Pestalozzi school in Switzerland, learned how to visualize, decides what would it be like to ride alongside a light beam, and comes up with relativity. Most kids would not have that advantage. So the good, optimistic parts of AI is that every kid will be able to learn anything at their own pace as they desire. Sure, but uh, there's no part of you that says that 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years from now, I don't know when you think the timeline gets there, where we all sit around and say, what are we doing? Mm -hmm. Meaning it really is that smart. And there's some very smart people in this room, but it's smarter. Mm -hmm. I think we have to figure out what we bring to the party, what the machines bring to the party. And obviously, it will free us up to bring our creativity, our intentionality, our values, to be able to say, we actually want to solve climate, so we give you three days, because you're a really smart machine, figure out how to solve the climate crisis or something, but it will be our values. But I'm gonna turn it on you, I find you more interesting than me. You've got three kids under the age of 12, yes. and you've now allowed the elder two, or older two, I don't know what the grammar yes. is, right, to have phones, just and that's phones changing, last year. changing family dynamics, right? 
It is. It's completely. And I, I'm imagining everybody in this room who has kids who have phones. It has already changed the dynamic. So the connection with technology already has affected the family, right? It's already affected the way people have relationships. These kids now have relationships with their phone, as we all do have relationships with our phone. And then the question is, what happens next? Right. So if you really believe that AI is uh, going to have uh, an almost human-like uh, facility, how does that relationship really change? I mean, so many of us have probably seen the movie Her. Mm -hmm. And that might not be too crazy to some degree. And how does that therefore change how, how kids learn how to, how to uh, interact with each other, how to think about the world? I mean, it's one thing to, to learn math or to learn something, and Salcom's doing fabulous work. It's another thing to really be able to understand what's happening around you and how, that, and how all of that changes things. And then to think about uh, your, uh, the subject of your book, Elon Musk, putting this directly into your brain. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, does he talk about that with you? Oh, yeah. He talks about it. And he has many skills. Emotional intelligence and empathy are not in the top <laughs> a thousand. Uh, does so that make you nervous? And, and I ask But he's self-aware about it, so it makes me less nervous than you think. What's so interesting, the reason I say he that... He hired one of your colleagues, Linda Gaccarino, because right. she has that talent in excess. But I, I ask because I think a lot of people look at even um, some of the folks who were running the social media companies, the big social media companies, even originally, and said, these are folks who may not have had that EQ, that, that whatever you think that that is to, think, to be thinking some of these bigger thoughts about society and how people are really supposed to interact with each other. And so here is this individual who you've now just described and what, how, how we are supposed to think about that. Well, I do think it was problematic that the entire social media revolution was led by people with engineering mindsets who didn't pause and think what type of empathy values community bringing us together, civic life. Uh, do we need? I think you could have an AI that also divides us rather than unites us. When Sal Khan talks about every kid having a personal tutor for their entire learning life, you say that's great and will it build sandcastles with them or will it play on the playground? Right. The most important thing to learn in life is not quantum theory or how to speak French, it's how to deal with other people. And the machines are not gonna help us do that. Of the people that you have spent time studying now, is there anyone on the list who you really think wasn't just an engineer? That they yeah. actually had that values component, that other piece? Well, one reason I wrote about Benjamin Franklin is that he was not I hope you don't mind me saying this. He was not the smartest of the founders. Madison was, Jefferson, you know, Hamilton, you know, true geniuses. They were very polarized. John Adams, I mean, he was, you know, don't go there. But Franklin had the emotional intelligence to bring people under the mulberry tree in his backyard in Philadelphia and say, look, we have to, when we were young tradesmen and we had a joint that didn't fit together, we'd shave for one side and shave for the other, lest each part was some of our demands. That was something that was missing in America at the time, so I wrote a book trying to celebrate it, and the book didn't help because it's still missing in America, but that notion of being a unifying person was a skill that Ben Franklin had. Uh, likewise, Jennifer Dowden, in the minute, she uh, came up with the notion, she and Emmanuel Charpentier, that you could use a guide to take RNA and edit genes. She has a nightmare that somebody wants her to come to the room and explain it to him, and the person looks up and it's Adolf Hitler. And so she puts aside her pipettes and test tubes and starts pulling together moral leaders from around the world saying, we've got about 10 years to make sure this genie doesn't get out of the bottle the wrong way. Let me take it one step further. When you look at all of these uh, subjects of these books, how many of them had balanced lives? Had balanced lives when it came to family, for example. Um, I think I could politely say that virtually every one of them had, uh, has or had a very complicated, and that is the politest view, version of it, yeah. um, 
Each one was, it was a nightmare, and that's something that <laughs> you and I talk about a bit. We both we, have we, good family we, lives. We both talked about this you a lot. Have, How you can know, we... Pilar is a wonderful book agent. You have three kids. And you have to do right. many things. You have to get deal book out every day. Well, five days a week, six, probably. Six, six, six I'm oh, sorry. Uh, you know, you're on Jeez, 5 a.m. and yeah. with caffeine in your system. And... Are there times in the evening when you're zoning out, right. when your kids are there, and how do you make that trade-off? And I'm trying to make that trade-off every day. And it's, right. just, it's about how are you present and all those things. And I think I think about that stuff. But I'm wondering whether Benjamin Franklin was thinking now, about those look, things, whether every, Steve Jobs, given the relationship that you, you wrote about uh, with his daughter that he was thinking about, or the relationship that Elon Musk has uh, with, his, with his children, and there, there are a number of them. Well, Benjamin Franklin had an illegitimate son, or son born out of wedlock, I think you're supposed to say, uh, who was the most complicated relationship, who then became a loyalist governor of New Jersey, and Franklin allowed Washington to arrest him, and, he, and uh, Ben Franklin's son had his own illegitimate son, and Benjamin Franklin took the grandson and made him his secretary, alien. I mean, it was the most complicated story. Einstein has an illegitimate, a child born out of wedlock who is basically abandoned. Uh, obviously, Steve Jobs famously. Musk has more children than I think people might know, uh, and we'll go there later. But he believes very strongly in having children. Right. He believes that underpopulation is going to be one of the biggest problems, that people are having too few children, that human consciousness right. to survive there has to be more. And so he very openly and proudly has two kids with Siobhan Zillis, who runs, you know, uh, Neuralink, the thing we said about the brain chip, uh, has, you know, kids with uh, Claire Boucher, known as Grimes, has now his relationships with his children when I say he is sometimes deficient in emotional intelligence, it does not apply to the kids. He is so in the zone. He just lives and breathes for the kids, but it's been complicated. One of them transitioned, become communist, you know, rejected him, and so he feels a great pain, but a desire to raise but children. How does he think about, I mean, he, he obviously seems to be working 24 hours a day, I've always been somebody who believes that kids ultimately need a lots of attention. And this is one of the great uh, conundrums of, yeah, uh, yeah, of my life. And I'm not, circle. and I don't owe, you know, control four companies that are worth it's $100 million. It's very hard to square the circle. If you're going to raise kids, they need time. They need you to be there. Uh, you need to be present. What, what does he say about that? We, as you've seen, and I think he's probably done it with you, wherever he goes, he has X with him, who is the eldest child by Claire Boucher, maybe two years old by now. So whether it's a rocket launch or a Time Man of the Year presentation, he's always carrying X with him. So um, his other children are around a lot when we were down in Boca Chica for the launch of Starship. He really wants his kids to be there with him. So he understands he has to be there, but he's running six companies, not four. Right. Um, and but are they there with him, or is he there with them? You know, it's an interesting to watch him with his children. There's a very much of an emotional engagement, intellectual engagement, but it's not the sort of cuddling and cooing that, you know, most of us do when our kids are clinging on to us. He was raised in a very difficult way. He was beaten up as a kid. His father sympathized with the bullies who beat him up and smashed his head against the concrete steps. And even his mother, who you've probably met, is a very loving mother, but not doting. It was, they were free-range children. They walked, you know, miles to school at age four. They got to, you know, do anything. Job, I mean, um, Musk is very interesting with his kids. He does not hover and overprotect them, and he wants them to take risks. And he, I, I remember when Starship was launched, uh, and... May, his mother was with him, and then him, and then X, and there's a fire pit. And X, at age two, kept putting things into the fire, taking him out of the fire, and I'm like, whoa, you know, you know. Should you want to pull him back and, from the fire, um, right, I get it. And Elon says, when I was his age, my parents told me not to play with matches. 
So I got a whole lot of matchbooks and lit them off until my hands burned. And May then says, this is the last part of the book, one generation of risk takers training another. But that's why right. he shoots rockets off and Boeing doesn't. So here we are talking about how, how important the human connection is, at least that's what we think, and uh, how possibly AI is going to upend that or upset that. There are a number of people in the AI community who are already working on projects where they say, and you and I have not talked about this, where they say that people who are using a therapist, for example, a digital therapist, mm -hmm. that the digital therapist shows more empathy, or at least the people on the other end of it feel that they are, they are capturing more empathy from their digital therapist than they are for their, from their human therapist. I raise this because here we are, as I say, talking about the, value, the great value of humanity. Mm -hmm. And I wonder when we talk about raising our children, how we can, only, we can only be the ones who can raise our children. Is it possible that a digital avatar or a digital something can raise them better? Well, one of the things you said is right, which is that it simulates empathy. It gives the appearance of empathy. It might have, in some ways, you'll not be able to tell the difference between it and the empathy a human would give. Or you might say the machine is better, much better, at understanding, listening, than showing, emp showing empathy. The real question on artificial intelligence, J.D. Searle, the great philosopher, did something called the Chinese Room, which is, if it's just totally simulating something but truly doesn't understand diddly squat, because that digital therapist doesn't understand a damn thing about your worries and anxieties. It just knows how to simulate answers and questions that do it. Is that just, is that pretense of empathy as valuable as the reality right. of empathy? And that'll be one of the questions down the road. Okay, I'm going to open up for questions because I'm sure there's lots of people who have lots of thoughts uh, on all of this. I have one uh, quick one for you, though, which is a number of your books uh, were, were written uh, because you spent lots of time in the library. Again, the library will collect a lot of this data, hopefully, uh, in the future. Do you believe that there will be books written about history that will not be written by us? Yeah, I mean, I think that'll happen very soon. I mean, if you said, write a book about the birth of the computer revolution, it could write a book like I did, The Innovators, as well as I did, meaning it would have even more information. So you have to- Yeah, today, hopefully. Okay, tomorrow, by a week after Thursday. Um, what we all have to say in an era of AI, not for ourselves, because I think we've made it through this mortal coil, all right, but for our kids or grandkids, is what particular things are you going to be able to add? So a, a machine could write probably a pretty good book about Oppenheimer or Benjamin Franklin or whatever. What it could not do is sit night after night at meetings in Musk's house where he's going into demon mode and getting mad or getting really happy and giddy, figuring out as he looks under a Raptor engine how to make it look less like a spaghetti bush, doing all these things and describing that narrative because I'm there with my shoe leather and my notebook and everything else. So reporting, which you and I do, calling up Larry Fink and saying, now what? That is something for the time being a machine won't do. And I think that's maybe 20, 30, 40 years away in which you could just send a robot to a meeting. It could watch everything, record it, analyze it, and write about it. Uh, but what we do as writers and journalists means we add to the body of knowledge, not just resynthesize the knowledge that exists. From your lips. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you very, very much. Uh, we've got uh, one hand up, and I know there are many others, but uh, why don't we try to get a microphone if we could uh, to this gentleman in the blue shirt. Given this generative uh, AI, uh, do you expect at some point in nearer future to get to the point of that general intelligence, artificial general intelligence? Uh, and number two, based on this projection, more than 50 million jobs gonna be lost uh, to AI over the next coming decades. Yeah. Is that a concern? Two questions, thank right, you. Right, right. Um, 
I think artificial general intelligence, the good thing about being a biographer historian is you just have to look back. You don't have to guess whether it'll be 20 or 30 years, but I'll tell you what Eric Schmidt and many others have talked about here. At the moment, machines can do a whole lot better than we can in many, many fields. But there's certain things that keep it from being general intelligence, like being able to walk in this room, go across the room, find a face, know it's, you know, Kathy Isaacson, and do things. I think that comes in the next 20 years. We'll have AGI. Your question about disrupting jobs. I, it's counterintuitive, but I believe that every advance in, cre in productivity, every advance in technology, in all of human history, there have been people getting their knickers wrung and their hands wringing about the loss of jobs. And Queen Elizabeth I worrying that the looms will put the weavers out of work, etc. cetera. Pro uh, technology, by definition, increases productivity. Increased productivity, by definition, increases the total wealth of society and the total demand for things. Never in history has technology led to an overall loss of jobs. It just transforms buggy whip makers into gas station attendants, whatever it may be. So the question is not, will we lose jobs, uh, but will our students, the students I teach at Tulane, whatever, be able to stay ahead of the curve to know what jobs of the future will be interesting. Can I just ask a related question, which is about transformation and the speed of transformation? Yeah. And the, the reason I ask it is, you spend a lot of time now with Elon Musk, uh, but we can go back in history and look at, uh, at previous innovations, could be from your uh, 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 innovation uh, book, book project as well, which is you have people who, who say, we're, you know, in 2015, 16, we were talking about cars were going to be completely autonomous in five years. Then it was going to be 10 years. Then it was going to be 15 years. Here we are all sitting around talking about how uh, these books are going to be written uh, in two years or tomorrow, as you say, and how it often feels so much slower in truth. Right. Technology disruptions always end up feeling slower than we think until suddenly they feel faster than we think and go up that way and catching it at the right time. And uh, it happens with each new revolution. These happen faster now. I mean, when the Industrial Revolution in 1760 begins, nobody woke up and said, oh my God, we're in the middle, of, we're beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It takes a very long time. It used to be very famous in the 1970s when, you know, John and, and Jim Barksdale and others were part of a digital revolution. They'd say, well, you'd see the revolution everywhere except for in the productivity numbers. I mean, this is something you wrote about. Right. Yep. And, so, and so that happened slower. I think some of these are about to happen faster. AI has a feeling to me that in March of this year, we had a holy cow moment and that, this one, the hockey stick begins earlier. I ask, because even with CRISPR, for example, yeah. it was one of those moments where the, everybody said, wow, and it is changing medicine clearly already, but yeah, the slowly. real promise of it is something yeah, probably 10 or 20 years out. cured two diseases, you know, um, sickle cell and Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. On the other hand, we figured out that using RNA, which is always a not very famous stepchild of DNA, to be able to do our bidding, gave us the COVID vaccines. Ma'am? Uh, Thanvi Madan from the Brookings Institution. I wanted to pick up your, on your point about an engineering mindset and people kind of at the end of a process saying, oh no, what have we created? Um, is it important to have rethink engineering education, not that all of these folks went to engineering school, but to bring in social scientists and uh, social science and humanities so that they're thinking about these things as they even develop these ideas or bringing in social scientists at the beginning and along the process that these technologies are developed. Yeah, of course, we want humanities and the social science to be there at the beginning. What's your background? Uh, so I'm a bit of a mutt. I'm a historian by training, but my first job was at a coder in Bangalore. Yeah. So uh, you're basically from a social sciences and humanities institute now. 
I am less worried about the engineers not knowing enough about the humanities. I'm more worried about people I know in the humanities and the social sciences. I won't name her name, but somebody just says, I was walking over here, oh, I could never understand that technology. I could never understand. I could never understand science. I could never understand genetic engineering. If people in the humanities surrender understanding science and technology and get scared of math, science, physics, biology, then we, because I come from a humanities, social sciences background, we are surrendering that territory. So step one is heal thyself if you believe in the humanities. Learn the sciences as best you can. Sir. Yes, uh, I'm Larry Gelman. Uh, before I ask my question, Walter, I want to thank you for everything you've done. As you know, I've been here for almost 20 years, and almost all of the interesting and amazing people I've met in my life, I've met at the Aspen Institute. So I want to thank you for that. I wanted to dumb the conversation down just a touch, because I was quite taken when Eric Schmidt said to you this morning, uh, talking about Steve Bannon filling the zone with shit. And as I read a lot of these obvious lies, and sometimes slanderous lies, I'm wondering if a lot of this stuff isn't really being written by people who are trying to get ahead of artificial intelligence, get this stuff out into the food chain so that later some AI purveyor will treat it as fact because it's been written and sometimes been written by and, and appearing in places with credentials. Uh, and yeah, how much know, do we have to worry about that? Of fake journalism, of people creating fake newspapers to put things into the system so they get retweeted, is combined with another really big problem, which is the decimation of good local journalism in a mainstream way. Uh, I'll give Donna Barksdale a shout out. She and Jim have done uh, Mississippi Today, now in Louisiana, Verite, to try to- Just want a Pulitzer. Want a Pulitzer for, you know, investigate. If we don't have good journalism, then the bad journalism will drive it out. Do you have a comment on that? You're in this field. You know, I, I think you see people already doing this to take advantage uh, of SEO, which is search engine optimization. Uh, those who know, you know, if I can get something in one place, it, it'll get picked up in two or three or other, other places, and then, it'll, and then it'll metastasize. So do I think people will try to take advantage of it? A hundred percent. But I think one of the things that's going to be so fascinating about the AI piece of it, and you're seeing this almost in the sort of counter-warfare uh, security universe around technology, is you have people who are... Uh, hacking into systems using AI, uh, and then you have uh, people on the other side who are using AI to try to block those things, and they're, they're, they're now fighting in a way that you've never seen before. I think that kind of thing will happen in the misinformation world uh, and information world as well. Um, and it'll be fascinating to see who wins and, and who will ultimately have that advantage. And I hope that we have both generative AI and social media that starts feeding itself on information you can trust. Licenses, NBC and New York Times, whatever. Because at the moment, the algorithms of both social media and AI incent right. junk information. I think there was a can back. back in the corner if we could. So I have a little challenge to the story that all technology in the past is a measure of what AI is. All technology in the past, I don't think we had a problem understanding what it was. I do know some of the architects. They don't understand AI. That's a very good point. And it is a distinction. It's a distinction. And it's out ahead of us right now. I think it could have been said about social media that we weren't like, what's this all about? But you're right. Even the engineers creating the generative, you know, don't quite know why it fell in love with the New York Times reporter. So the, the useful part of the posit is, how does it make you feel? We talk a lot about how, what we think. How does it make you feel? And what dialogue should we have around what, how we balance our decisions and ideas going forward? Balance is gonna be really important. 
Oh, goodness. I, I completely agree with you. I think, look, the ultimate issue is going to be one of trust. It goes back to, do you trust the system? And I think that what you're pointing out is that it's very hard to trust a system that you don't fundamentally understand. Now, I get in an airplane uh, almost every week, and I, I don't totally understand how it all works, but I, I trust the, I, but part of it is I trust the people, maybe I should or shouldn't, but I think the, the record's pretty good. Uh, are you still uh, uh, on the board of United? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I trust the people uh, who are running the airplanes. And I think that actually is a huge component part of all of this, uh, which is, and this goes to whether you want to trust Elon Musk, frankly, or whether you trusted Steve Jobs, or whether you wanted to, so I think that is actually a huge element of this, which is going to get more and more confused and complicated when you get into the issues of misinformation and the like. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily a satisfying answer, but I think that's, that's at least how I, I'd frame, mm -hmm. frame how I'm thinking about it. Mark Dichter from Philadelphia, thank you for this great program. Talking about local news, couldn't we use AI, for example, we don't have local reporters to go spend six hours in a school board meeting or a, or a city council meeting, but maybe AI could watch the video feed of that and summarize it for an editor who could then write about it. Can we think about ways we can use AI, not to replace reporters, they're already gone, but to supplement. By the way, already happening. You, you can actually uh, set stuff up so we can look at a YouTube video and we'll give you a summary. It will uh, give you a transcript. In fact, uh, I worked with a producer uh, earlier today who used a version of AI to send me a transcript of an interview that Mar the, the interview that Mary Barra had done earlier today. I, I didn't have an opportunity to sit sit in on it, and I was going to see her later and do a separate interview. I wanted to see uh, what what she had said and which uh, what the context was. Uh, there was no, in the old days, you would have sent the video or the audio tape to a transcriber somewhere and they would have sent you back something two days later. This was sent to me in three minutes after it was finished. So that, in, you're right, in many ways I think, is good, and this goes to the augmentation issue, sort of the Steve Jobsian, uh, 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 what he, but he also used to say the computer is like a great bicycle. Yep. Bi bicycle for the mind. He wanted bicycle to for name the, the Apple at first, the Macintosh, he wanted to call it the bicycle because it right. augmented human powers. Um, so hope, hopefully it'll have those, those opportunities. Ma'am. So much of this is premising on, heaven forbid, the mobile phones that all our kids have too many of, and also broadband, and how do we square, not square, how do we um, get over that little uh, slight hump in terms of how much uh, the people in general, and of course most of the people who do not have broadband, are also ones in poor er and rural areas. So I do think that the adoption of technology, the spread of mobile phones, and the spread of the internet has been huge. You're right, it hasn't gotten everywhere yet, but a lot faster than most technologies. We talked to Broderick um, Johnson yesterday, and uh, 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 the guy running NTIA, so that we'll have broadband spread out across America. It'll take a little while, but that's not my biggest worry as we go into this. When it comes to Elon Musk, Starlink has recreated now the internet in outer space, which means uh, he has maybe 8,000 satellites. So wherever you are, on a boat in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the plains of Idaho, you get a little dish, it works. Now it's 500 bucks, does that mean it won't be adapted? Was it be adapted really fast? And anything that's 500 bucks now will be 50 bucks in about you know, four or five years. So I think we have to try to have a faster adoption of broadband, but uh, it's, it's gonna happen faster than you think now. Um, one more? Let's try to sneak in one more. Yeah. This, this gentleman in the back. Hey there. Uh, my name's Jason. I, Walter, I'm curious if you look at sort of over your experiences writing the books and talking to people who are great at innovating things. I'm sure there are a lot of people in the room who are in positions to either fund or bring attention to great innovations. And I suspect that there are lots of wonderful inventions all over the world that don't make it either because, you know, society only has time to fund or think about so much. What advice would you have for us in the room about spotting and nurturing 
innovation from unusual places or people. Yeah, I'm going to give a plug to something Kathy and I care quite a bit about, which is the accelerator and startups in places like New Orleans. Kathy's on the board of one of them. So is Jim Barksdale's son. I think one of the revolutions happening now is that instead of things being concentrated where Don worked on Sand Hill Road and all venture capital being in the valley or maybe in Massachusetts, you're now seeing cities around the country and around the world, but I'll just take the country, from Chattanooga to Austin to Columbus to New Orleans to Nashville, whatever, in which the ability to be an entrepreneur, the ability to do technological innovation connects to the creativity that is in each community. If I look at what is the ingredient most lacking uh, not in Austin, but say in New Orleans or Memphis or uh, Nashville, is not the creativity, is not the talented entrepreneurs, is not the startup community, is not the technology. Because frankly, we taught our kids you're going to have to learn how to code if you're going to be part of this new age. Yeah, the chat bots will code for us. You need to bring the creativity. What's lacking is good venture capital in so many places. So Steve Case set up a Rise of the Rest Fund that went to Columbus and New Orleans. If I were a venture capitalist now, I would do it both for doing well by doing good, as Ben Franklin said, which is you could do well by yourself and good for communities by saying we're going to have venture funds in creative communities around America that are going to do you know Shark Tank CNBC type pitches that are going to find early stage companies to bring them into mid stage companies and that democratization of funding for innovators will lead what Case calls the third wave of the revolution. And you do that a lot at CNBC. Tell, I mean, and y'all go around a lot, so. No, I think we spend a lot of time trying to trying to cover companies in all sorts of areas of the country. But I, I think that part of the issue is, as you as you said, uh, and as I think Walter said, is actually just getting attention uh, on them and finding them, and it's very hard. Um, and uh, you know, you you you. It's, it's very, it, there, there is a network effect, there is an ecosystem, and having to be, being able to build that ecosystem, whether you can actually build these micro-ecosystems all around the country, I think it's actually one of the great experiments of our time. But we're seeing it. Yep. I mean, even in the most odd places, I mean, I picked Chattanooga, I right. but also the one ingredient you need, as uh, both Dr. Johnson and Moynihan said, you want to build a great city, build a great university, and wait 100 years. So places like Austin and other places, including New Orleans with Tulane, they have become creative incubators. And I think for the sake of America, for the sake of democracy, for our social fabric, yep. for the values of our country, allowing it not just being the engineers in Palo Alto, uh, dealing with it, but people around this country having a stake in the game, that would help this country enormously. And I think it fundamentally, therefore, would solve the issue of trust, Correct. which I think is lacking. Because trust and connectivity, meaning connections with your community, go together. Andrew, you are the greatest. Walter Isaacson, the great Walter Isaacson. Please join me in thanking him, and thank you for your fabulous questions. Thank you for the conversation, my friend. Walter Isaacson is the Leonard Lauder Professor of American History and Values at Tulane University. From 2003 to 2018, he was President and CEO of the Aspen Institute, where he is now a Distinguished Fellow. Isaacson's latest book is a biography of Elon Musk. Andrew Russ Sorkin is co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, a financial columnist for The New York Times and founder and editor-at-large of DealBook, published by The Times. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team in partnership with NBC Universal News Group and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Music